Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Skyping's Welcome to another episode of Small Doses. Remember, my book, Small Doses, Potent Truths for Everyday Use, is out on paperback. And I know a lot of y'all may have gotten the hardback, but the paperback is... Uh, it is less expensive, and it's something that you can, like, buy three copies of and give to your friends, and they can carry them around. It's, it's just a good gifting option. It's a good gifting option. And, um, you know, I've been trying to figure out, like, how do I describe this book, Small Doses? And I'm so annoyed because I had heard somebody describe it the other day, and I was like, that's it! And now I can't even remember. But for all intents and purposes, Small Doses is basically, like, my axioms and idioms and thoughts around just all ways in which we are living in this life. And um, if you haven't read it, it really is the companion to this awesome podcast that you all have allowed us to keep doing for years and years and years. And we did the book because it was like, you know what? We need to like have like a reference point for this. And also you can check it out on Audible. Now, this week we have a good friend of mine and somebody who I feel like really is just an incredible example of what it means to really like take your path into your own hands. You know, when Shaka Senghor got out of prison and he had to like, you know, continue to make a way, he went to writing and he had discovered his skill and his love for writing while he was locked up. But he could have easily just kind of gotten back on the same path that got him locked up. But he had found a new way of living um, even amongst the madness that takes place in prison. And he carried that through. And now he is an incredibly successful person. And when we talk about redemption, I want to make sure that we're not talking about necessarily just success as it relates to some something financial, but success in terms of being able to live the life that you genuinely want to live and deserve to live that comes from um, healing and that comes from joy and that comes from happiness. And I think I know a lot of folks that settle for a life where they have to find joy and find happiness and and you know kind of don't even get to experience healing but all of us i believe you know have the capability and deserve to be able to do the best with our time on this earth contrary to what society may try to tell us so shaka is an example of that and he is joining us today to tell us how he found that path and ways in which we can all apply it to ourselves as we proceed in uh <laughs> the dopeness of conversations that we have been having here at small doses we've had a large dose of just individuals coming through talking the talks the things and so we are continuing forth with my homeboy right here mr shaka Sanghor. what's up amanda so let me just tell y'all um i met shaka because I had hit Charlemagne after the whole uh, Snoop and Gail fiasco and was like, this is just an outrage. This is a fiasco. Like, why are people not understanding 
how we are just wilding with degrading each other. And he was like, you know what? My homeboy was saying the same thing, that we need to come together. I'm going to connect y'all. And then he put me and Shaka on a group chat. And then we had like a five-hour conversation. (laughs) And, And at this point, I don't think we've ever had a phone call less than an hour long. Um, and by the way, every time we have an hour long phone call, Shaka's like, we got to have a real phone call so we can catch up. And I'm like, <laughs> we're just on the phone for an hour. But Shaka, so Shaka, you know, Shaka, I've made a habit now of asking people to basically like d- do their own defining of their credit because I feel like sometimes, like, I know I hate when I go on something and people are like, actress Amanda Seals. And I'm like, Argh. So yeah. Yeah. how would you describe Shaka Senghor as you exist in the world today? Oh, that's a, that's a really a great question. I mean, I, I am definitely a, a man of many hats outside of the D hat. Um, the most important title I have is as a dad. You know, I love being a father. It brings me immense joy. Um, so that's the, the number one kind of identifier for me. But I'm also a writer. I'm a tech executive. I'm also a tech investor. Uh, one of the things that I'm trying to get more people to start thinking about is like actually investing in, in technology and things of that nature. Uh, and I'm a criminal justice reform activist. So, you know, I wear many hats, but, you know, those kind of sum it all up. And so many of you may know Shaka from uh, his book, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death and Redemption in an American Prison. And, you know, you know, once Oprah co-signs you, like that becomes... <laughs> That becomes like a shift in your, in your dimension of existence. Um, And so, you know, I think the reason why I wanted to have you on this episode, not just because the word redemption is actually in your book title, but Mm -hmm. also because I think, you know, you are a great example of somebody who really like was, was handed a certain set of cards and, you know, played those cards the way they were given to you. And something and and we've talked about this but I, I definitely would love to be able to talk about it on the show like something within you and some and there were things outside of you also that kind of brought you on a path where you could redeem yourself from you know the way those cards were played and i feel like there's a lot of folks who for who have experienced varying um entries into this world who feel like they don't have control of their destinies and who feel like, you know, they don't have agency and for many reasons. And listen, we all know that the prison industrial complex is real. We all know that racism and sexism and patriarchy and all of these things are incredible obstacles to overcome. But I think when it comes to your story of redemption, the thing that's always kind of boiled down to it for me was like, there was a certain value system that shifted. And so, and so like that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there was a value system that shifted and that got awakened and that became like the tentpole for how you started moving in your life. No, absolutely. And that's a great way to frame it because that's what it came down to is value. Uh, how do I value myself? You know, speaking of that, that certain set of cards, you know, I grew up in Detroit and, and I grew up in a household that on the outside looking in, was like the model for middle-class or working-class Black America. You know, my dad was in the military. He also worked for the state. My mother was a homemaker. They were raising six kids. Uh, But unfortunately, you know, my mother, it was very abusive. And so by the time I was 14, I was just like, I got to run away. I got to get away from here. And 
I was an honor roll scholarship student at the time. You know, I was, you know, naive to a large part of the street culture, even though I had some awareness because I had older brothers. But, you know, I, I got into that culture in 86. This is when crack cocaine is first hitting the Midwest, you know. So I'm literally a 14-year-old naive scholarship school student being swooped into this environment, you know. And within the first six months, all the imaginable horrors that come with that culture I experienced, you know, my childhood friend was murdered. Uh, I was robbed at gunpoint and I was beat nearly to death. And that's probably one of the moments that that resonates with me the most, because I remember laying on this cold bathroom floor and asking myself this question of how do we have a world where grown men can beat a kid nearly to death? And unfortunately, I've never got an answer to that question because it's still happening. And, you know, three years into that culture, I got shot multiple times. And 16 months later, I shot and tried to be caused the man's death. So when I went to prison, I had this narrative running that this was the only outcome my life could have. Uh, I had experienced every check mark of street life, being shot, being addicted, you know, all the things that come with it, hustling, getting money, and the, the, the awards that come with it as well. Um, but, you know, on that journey, I went in, I was bitter, I was angry. You know, I got into a lot of trouble in prison. Some people meet me now and they think I was just like the model prisoner that had a come to Jesus moment. I'm like, nah, I was running the cell blocks. I was running illegal stores. I was running drug trafficking. I, I accumulated. How does, that, how does, how, because I don't watch lock up, you know, there's, there's prison shows that will show you. And I, I'd be like. I feel like you should watch these, but then I just be feeling like, no, because you're like supporting a system. I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were like, you know, prison is a violent place that creates violent folks, right? So like you, you don't go into prison and it doesn't like, like the nature of prison doesn't rehabilitate anybody. Right. So like when you tell me like, okay, when I first got to prison, I was not a model prisoner. Like one, what does a model prisoner look like? Because I don't even know if that (laughs) can even like, I don't even know how that can exist with, with survival. Cause it feels like the, the, the actual space, which is how I feel about like the hood. Right. Like, I think there's a lot of folks that feel like, you know, Oh, black people, they, they don't excel because they act a certain way. And it's like, but if you're in a certain environment, yeah, there's a certain behavior that just naturally is going to happen by just crook or by hook because of survival. Yeah. You know, you, you make a good point. And it's because it is, it's an extension of the hood. A lot of people be like, yo, what hood you come from? And I'm like, well, I was in prison the longest. So it's kind of my neighborhood, right? It's an extension of, of the community in a real way. And so there are guys who can navigate it in the same way. Just imagine like a, a, a kid in the neighborhood who's on a path to being an athlete or, you know, we know he's the smart kid and the hustlers be like, yo, get away from here, bro. Go on, on get in them books, you know, stay on that path. So there are guys who come through where, you know, it's clear that they didn't commit the crime. They're not from the streets. Mm. And so they can, if they come from like a certain neighborhood, guys will kind of put that armor of protection around and be like, really? don't mess with bro. Let him stay in the law library. Let him figure out how to get himself out of prison. Wow. Um, but, you know, if you coming in the way I came in, it's just like, okay, I got to survive in here. I got to make it happen. I got to figure out how to get money. I got to provide for myself, but also got to protect myself because it's a very violent culture. And so coming in, you know, I was in that angry state and I'm just like, 
you know, I saw the first day I got to prison. So I went to quarantine first, which is like, a, you know, a couple of weeks so they can kind of assess what prison you go to. Then mm-hmm. I went to Michigan Reformatory. And literally the first day in, we coming out for child. A guy just casually walks up and stabs a guy in the neck, throws the knife in the mailbox, goes to child, and keeps it moving. Chow is dinner? Dinner, yeah, yeah, yeah. To the, to, okay. yeah, yeah, child is dinner. It's for the, to where you eat at. And, and, this, and you say reformatory. So is this like a juvie type? So this, this was for younger adults. So from like anywhere from like 21 down to like 15. Okay. And so that's where you start at. And then you end up going to other prisons based on aging out or, you know, behaving moderately. And, and then they'll send you to some of the uh, regional prisons. But this was like the big house for young guys, you know. And so I remember in that moment of like questioning myself, like, could I do that? You know, if I had to do that to survive, is that something that I can, you know, program myself to do is like take this cruelly made life and shank a guy and keep it moving. And I realized in that moment that you have a choice in this environment. You're going to be a lion or you're going to be a lamb. And I was like, I'm going to be a lion. And so, you know, my first five years in prison, I accumulated like 25 misconducts, which means I was consistently breaking the rules. Everything from dangerous contraband, which means getting caught with a weapon, to assault on staff, assault on uh, other guys in there. Uh, the first time I went to solitary was for a failed robbery attempt. Um, in the prison? Yeah, I was, I was, I was thugging it out, and it was one of the times. What is there to rob? Other, other, my neighbor. He didn't. He had things that I didn't have at the time, and you know, wasn't nobody putting money on the books. Because a lot of people fall off when you go to prison, right? All the friends and all that shit, that goes away. Um, yeah. So saw this opportunity, you know, went to, to to execute this robbery and the guy put up resistance and, you know, it turned into, you know, me beating him up and then being taken to solitary confinement where I remained for a year. So that was my first entry point into solitary. And then that escalated my security level to maximum security. So I was like one of the youngest guys amongst a lot of older guys who was on like maximum security lockdown, meaning I was pretty much in my cell for 23 hours out the day. Uh, But it was in that environment where I really met what I call one of my three miracles. Um, And this was these incredible older guys, you know, like I hear people throw the word OG around a lot nowadays and, you know, it's, it's used as, as, you know, cultural currency, but I think it's misplaced a lot of times, you know, like, I don't think you can be an OG unless you've actually been through like real G shit, you know, and a lot of guys haven't been through that, like working and going to school and, and getting a good job doesn't make you an OG. There's different life wisdom that comes with that. And these men, they saw something in me I didn't see in myself. You know, they was like, look, you know, you have leadership capabilities, you're you're really intelligent, charismatic, all these things. And I don't know what none of this shit mean. You know, at the time I'm 19 in maximum security looking at, you know, the next couple of decades of my life in prison. And so I was rebellious, but these guys were crafty. They were some of the smartest, most strategic thinking men I've ever met. And they figured out a way to reach me. And it was actually through books. And that's how I actually became a writer uh, years later. But you know, they gave me Donald Goins books, you know, Dope Fiend mm. and Horse Son and Black Girl Lost and Iceberg mm-hmm. Slim Pimp, because they knew that appealed to where I was at at that point in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. And they also knew that those books would run out because it was only a few people writing about our street culture back then. 
And then that's when they hit me with the Malcolm X. And I can tell you, I was so naive about Malcolm X that the only reason I read that, that book, because the name sounded gangster to me. I was like, this guy name sound gangsta's fun, right? Like Malcolm His last X. name is X. X right? <laughs> <laughs> like he about that life, right? <laughs> and, and I read that book and it was like the first awakening. And it wasn't a quick fix. You know, I, I tell people like the cartoons, remember the cartoons you had an angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other one? Mm-hmm. So it was like Malcolm X on one shoulder and it's like the hood version of me on the other shoulder. <laughs> and I would run into these moments where it's like, yo, this guy owed me $3. And I'm like, I need that bread. And Malcolm, like, come on, brother. You know, this is part of the system. This is the white supremacy system talking to you. And I'm like, no, I got to get this bread because if I don't, that signals something else in the in the culture, right? And so that's where the beginning stages of kind of like challenging my thinking and understanding my value. You know, the, the part that resonated with the book to me the most was when he was in school. And the teacher just basically told me he couldn't become anything in the world. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn, I was that kid. I remember competing with this white kid in my class who I was way more intelligent with. What like was his was name? I feel like we always remember. His name was Michael. I, I never See, forget Michael. Everybody always remember the Literally, name. I'm talking about whether it was art, we was competing, whether it was just academics. And I would always outperform him, but he would always get celebrated. Yep. And it just made me feel like I could never do enough, you know? And so, you know, there were so many things that shifted at my personal identity, even leading up to going to prison, that by the time I got there, I didn't think I could be anything other than bad, you know? And so, you know, once I read Malcolm, it led me to a whole bunch of other works. You know, I started reading Mark Scarvey and Asada and all these brilliant writers from the Harlem Renaissance. And I was like, then I became angry. Because I was like, why didn't I know this when I was a kid? Why didn't I know this coming up? Why wasn't this type of education infused into the broader education? Because I personally believe if you have a sense of self, like the way you value yourself is different. And so that began that journey of like personal value. Like, you know, I can't just allow this system to destroy me. And it took me years to get to that point to where I was like, you know, I would never be complicit in being a part of the system again. And, and it was one of these moments that was so powerful. And, I, and I'll tell you about this moment. I was in solitary confinement at this time where I ended up doing four and a half years straight. And an officer came to my cell and he was like, you know, um, I want, you know, I want to do a strip search. And I was like, no, I'm not doing a strip search, you know? And he was like, well, I'm going to call the Was rest that of the normal? So they could normally do it if there was cause for them to do it, right? But for them, anything is caused. Them just walking past and not liking you was caused. And oftentimes they was doing it to humiliate yeah. and to kind of keep you in your place. And I'm looking at this this guy and I mean, he he's very he's he's very inarticulate. You know, he's like a backwood mm-hmm. hillbilly. And I said to myself, I will never be in a situation where somebody who's intellectually inferior to me can tell me what to do with my body, can tell me what to do with my life, and I just was like, I refused that shakedown. I was like, go get your goon squad. Whatever y'all need to do, I'm not volunteering for you to have me bend over so you can look in my ass. Like, I'm just, I'm not signing up for that. And so that moment, I was like, I'll never be in these people prison again, you know? And that just led me down a, a deeper path of understanding that when you don't have personal value, anybody can assign value to you. Say it again. So many, Wait, it- yeah. 
say it again. <laughs> yeah, when you don't have personal value, anybody can assign value to you. And, and what is the difference between personal value and arrogance? Yeah, I think arrogance comes with with the inability to actually live up to what your potential is, but yet you want to shout that from the mountaintop. Um, and you know, I hear I hear everybody want to be a goat right now. Everybody's talking about they're the greatest of all time. And I'm like, you know, having having privilege and having talent that's born in you, but not being able to execute on that, like that's something different, you know. And and, and I've actually been talking about. You know, what does it mean to be the greatest of all time? And, and I'm like, when I look at my starting point to where I'm at to this day, and I measure that against other people who have, you know, tried to do some of the things that they imagine themselves doing, but they're not willing to put the work in. I'm like, that's what separates goats. It's like, all of us come with a certain set of talent and gifts and things that we can, you know, utilize to create a better life. But are you going to put the work in? You know, are you going to really rise to the challenge? <clears throat> and to me, that's what a goat is. Not so much about what you achieve as a result, but what you've had to come through to make those achievements matter in a meaningful way. I mean, I think there's also something to be said for just kind of this concept that, like, if you haven't, like, I think there's some people that think if they haven't gone through something as severe as you have, that they don't really have anything that they really like that they kind of like diminish their own experience. Right. Or they don't hold themselves. Uh, and, and it happens in one of two ways. Either they don't hold themselves to feeling like they need to do anything because they're like, I mean, my shit wasn't that bad. So, like, there's not much I need to do. Or they feel like you know what, let me not complain or let me not like acknowledge my own traumas because like they're small in, in regard to somebody else, but yet it's, everything is shaping us in these ways. And when, when we talk about greatest of all time, I think there's also just the measure of like yourself. Like, I feel like right now I am the greatest of all of my time. Like I've been on earth almost 40 years. And at this point I'm the greatest of all, of all Amanda time. You know, I think when I was 11 in sixth grade was another great time. I think I was really doing some things. And when I was 11 in sixth grade, but I'm just like, we do so much measuring about like, like we're, like that we we create michaels for us to compete against mm -hmm. and then we prevent ourselves from be able from being able to even redeem you know our own um shortcomings and for what it's worth like the stuff that we've gone through that we didn't have control over absolutely like well, you that. you told me something one time and i was like you know how are you okay nigga like how, <laughs> like how like, yeah. how are you okay and you were like Cause I was curious and I have never forgotten that. Cause you were like, I was curious. You were like, I, I was presented with, you know, books and concepts, but I, I remained curious about the possibility of, of change. And, you know, there's, I, and I know people who haven't, right. Like I know people who they don't remain curious. They actually just kind of settle in for being the receptor of whatever was given to them. And no, I think that's such a, go ahead. Okay. No, I just, just keep, no, tell me, I mean, elaborate because I know that was, that stays with me all the time. 
And freeway yeah. and, and freeway Rick Ross said something similar when when I was on his Instagram live. Yeah. He's also wildly charismatic. Y'all are some charismatic <laughs> ass folks. And I was like, oh, I know exactly how you became who you are. Because you on this live, just like, what's up? How y'all doing? You know what I'm saying? We gonna get books in prison. You know, it was been a, it's been a great... I was like, I feel like you're wooing me. I, I, like, I can't handle it. Um, but like, talk to me about that. About like the idea of redemption like when did you even feel like that was a thing that you needed to do or did it was it ever that clear yeah you know what it, it wasn't it really wasn't that clear right um you know uh, going going back to the value point like you just made such a profound statement that you know really resonates with me this comparative analysis that we do based on the trauma olympics um, like I would never want anybody to go through what I've gone through to get where I'm at. Um, and it's one of the reasons as a father, I'm trying to create a pathway for my son to excel because what, what was in me was already in me. It didn't take the trauma to create that. Mm. Um, that was already in me. It's born in me, right? I see it in my son. Like I see it. Don't you feel like that's a thing? I feel like that's a narrative. So many people like make for themselves. Like I'm this way because I went through this shit. Like I'm. I'm this way because I, 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 like, I just hearing you say that is like such a, a light bulb moment because I feel like I've seen so many folks assign their dopeness and their greatness to, to the, the suffering that they've experienced, but you're, Absolutely. but, but something so valuable and you stating like, no, that was always, it was always there. Yeah. When people tell me, you know, you are only where you at because you've been in prison. I'm like, it's a hundred thousand people get out of prison a week. You know what I'm saying? They're not doing what I do. And, and it's not, it's not, doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't important. It means right. that I have to make a decision based on what was already born in me. And, you know, that's where the curiosity part of it comes from. It's like, when I began to go on this journey, I started with journaling and I just went back to like, okay, when I was a kid, I was smart and I was curious. Where did that go? You know, mm -hmm. and I realized that there were things that had happened, but that stuff had already been there. You know, I would get on punishment and my mom would be like, ain't no TV. And I'm like, cool, but it's Encyclopedia Britannica up in this joint. Yep. And I'm about to learn about all type of random stuff, right? So those things are already in us. It's like, do you have the courage to access it? And then do you have the, the wisdom to be curious enough about the world? Like right now, I'm, I'm a tech exec at a company that's like one of the fastest growing you know, maturing startups right now. Like we got a $6 billion valuation. One only black tech execs, definitely one only formerly incarcerated. I could not be there if I wasn't curious. Incarceration doesn't do, doesn't build the skill set to go lead mm. at a company like this, right? I right. have to be willing to learn. You know, I had a fellowship at MIT Media Lab two years after I got out of prison. So imagine me walking into MIT Media Lab in Cambridge where it's robotics, it's 3D printing, it's AI, it's all the things that we use now was being created then. And I'm literally just coming out of this crude environment where we had no access to technology. And was it intimidating? Absolutely. I first went there, I felt dumb as a brick, you know, until one day they were doing demo day and I'm walking through and we're meeting with students and faculty. And there was this brother, he was, I could see he was trying to solve a problem. The problem was so easily solvable to me. And I just offered him a suggestion. And he was like, yo, 
That's what I've been trying to figure out all this time I've been here, right? Look at you, Goodwill <laughs> Hunting. What was, <laughs> what was the problem? Like, it was like a... He was working Because in on, my mind, it's like two trains are running at 500 miles. No, he was what? working on, on, on the... Um, so, you know, the navigational system in cars, he was working on one for Audi, and it was a particular thing that he was trying to get it to perform. And I just was like, have you thought about if you move this piece right here, that it may perform differently, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I, you know, I hadn't considered that, but now that you talk about it, and it was just like a real simple thing that he was iterating on. I was like, yo, I've been iterating my whole life. We just wasn't calling that. We was calling it nigger rig. What you is iterating? What that means like you're that. Taking, taking, you know, different things and putting them together to make, produce a different outcome, right? So it's like, you're at home, you can't get TV reception. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go get the wire hanger. hanger. Yeah, wire you know hanger. Yeah, the or, shit the shit that folks call ghetto is like no, that's, that's innovative. Doing, that's literally what they were doing at MIT Media Lab, right? They're just tinkering around, playing with things until they solve the problem. And I'm like, we've been solution oriented for so much of our lives because we've had to take the scraps and make the best of them. But that that moment was affirming for me that I could add value in any space if I'm curious enough to just go forward as opposed to retreating into myself. And that's one of the things that I think is, is, is undervalued in our community is the ability to be curious because we shut people down when they're like, hey, I want to go do this. Or you want to be like the white folks or are you about to go Hollywood or you're about to do these things. It's like, no, I actually want to explore the vastness that life has to offer and figure out what settles into my soul in a meaningful way. And so that curiosity has taken me on a journey that's like this last 10 years has been unbelievable. Uh, but to your point about the redemption piece, for me, it really wasn't about putting a name to what I was doing. Uh, for me, it was like, I realized that I was a kid that had lost a sense of what it meant to be human because I didn't have value. I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel nurtured and taken care of. Um, you know, when I talk about what happened in my life, I always emphasize the fact I was a kid. I was a kid when I first sold crack. I was 14 years old. I was a kid when I first smoked crack at 14 years old. I was a kid when I got shot at 17 years old. And I was a kid when I went to prison at 19. And all of those engagements, those traumatic events happened at the hands of adults or my engagement with adults. Um, And so for me, it was more about how do I get back to that kid and offer him the love that he was deserving of. And once I was able to do that, I was like, I went through this series. I was like super upset because I'm like, damn, like I got talent, you know, I can fucking write, you know, I can write books. I can think I can strategically, you know, organize things. Right. And a lot of those things I had learned in the street, like how do you organize a business? How do you structure all these things? They're interchangeable, but we don't assign the same value to them. Absolutely. And so yeah. for me, when I came home, people was like, you know, don't tell anybody you've been in prison. Just get a job, go about your business. And I'm like, why, why should I have to shrink myself, you know, at 38? Because that's how old I was when I came home. Like, why should I have to shrink my expectations, my values, what I want for my life, what I feel like I deserve as a human based on something I did when I was a kid? And up under very, you know, uh, uh, challenging circumstances, I had compounded PTSD. I got shot. I got passed up in the hospital. I was back on the corner, like literally within a week. There was nobody that said, hey, you should get therapy because what happened isn't normal. 
and it shouldn't be accepted as just, you know, a, a normal thing, right? Right. And so having empathy for what that experience was, it doesn't remove accountability or responsibility. It just says, listen, these things accumulated together, led you down a certain path. Now you're on a different path. You don't have to shrink yourself. You don't have to shrink your expectations. And then the other part was my friends are in prison and I can't get out here and not talk about the damning conditions in that environment that they're subject to. And so I was like, I'm coming out and I'm doing what I, what I envision myself doing. I started hustling books out the trunk and that just led me on this pathway. And, and the two things that really led me on this path is volunteering as a mentor and hustling my ass off selling books out the trunk. There was nothing, no, no big magic wand. Oprah didn't come discover me in prison. Right. Was, you know, <laughs> Oprah didn't come to lock up like, you, <laughs> you're who I want to see come out here. Yeah, you get a book deal. You get a book you deal. You get a book deal. You get a book deal. Yeah. I was just hustling my ass off, but it's because I believed in the value of what I was creating. And like, that was something that I had to learn in prison, you know, from like, when I got out of solitary after the last stretch was from 1999 to 2004, I got out and they told me- The entire time that I was in college, you were in solitary confinement. I was in solitary confinement. Wow. And they, and they told me I was never getting out. Honestly, they told me I never I was never getting out. But this is how I actually got out. So I had started reading philosophy. And I thought philosophy, like growing up, I thought it was like the most boring thing in the world. Oh, my God. Brendan right now is like, what? How could you think that? <laughs> Brendan is a philosophy scholar. Well, he likes to philosophize with us often. And we learn. We literally, learn. What, I, what I did is I just changed the names. I was like, it's too hard to be trying to figure out Glaucon and all this, I changed the name to like Tyrone and Living Instead of the Cave Allegory. It was like the Basement Allegory. And, you know, but, but but those things, when I did that, and, you know, it really started to resonate. So I, I, I wrote the warden who told me I was never getting out. And I wrote him and I said, listen, from the time I walked in prison, it was very clear that I had no plans on following the rules. And I was adamant about that if they didn't make sense to my life. So I would never volunteer for a strip search. They would have to like write me misconducts. Um, if I didn't feel like going in my cell because I felt like I had a right to be out, I wasn't doing it. So they would write me misconducts. And basically what I told them, I said, you know, I've been consistent in this, which in essence means I'm a man of my word. And if you believe that, you know, a person who follows actions, follow their words is the truth, then you have to trust that what I'm about to tell you is true as well. If you give me this opportunity to return the general population, here's what I plan to do. I plan to write books. I plan to mentor, et cetera. And if we're only basing your judgment on the truth, and you know I've always been a man of my word, then we have to both arrive at the right conclusion, which is I'm going to be a man of my word. And the warden actually wrote me back and was like, this is the most compelling letter I've ever received. Uh, and I'm going to advocate for you to get out of solitary. And he did. And it still took him two years to release me. But he advocated. Um, and so when I got why, out, Wait, wait. Why did it take two years? By the way, that letter sounds like me trying to convince my mom to buy me a Barbie. Like, that's how I used to go about it. Like, here's the understanding that I need you to arrive at. Um, why did it take two years? Because Isn't he I the had, warden? No. So the warden, because I had I was in solitary for assault on the staff. That's why they said I was never getting out. Um, I got into a conflict with an officer. And he got. I heard him really bad. Like, I actually... 
you know, they had to perform surgery on his tracheo. Uh, he almost died at the at the prison. And so I got sentenced to an additional two years in prison and what turned out to be four and a half years of solitary confinement. And so it had to go not just through the warden, it had to go through the regional director and then ultimately to the director of the prisons. And so the first time he put in, regional director disagreed. And so it came back again a year later, it went up kind of like this chain of command. Um, and they finally released me and I got out and I was just like, you know, I still got to navigate this world. Um, and, and I'm like, I never agreed to not defend myself, but I definitely won't instigate uh, situations and I'll, you know, I'll manage. But I began to run, run these classes called Houses of Healing. And it was the most powerful experience I've had as a man to really sit in a room with men and watch them unearth what happened to them in their childhood. And it's for them to arrive at a space where they were able to liberate themselves from, you know, things that they ultimately weren't responsible for as kids. Like you can't be accountable as a kid if you get molested by your babysitter and you're six years old. Um, and unfortunately in the culture, it's sadly that celebrate like, oh, you was having sex when you were six. It's like, no, brother, you was being molested and traumatized at that age, um, you know, and the kind of beatings that, that, you know, these men had experienced. And so those things really just led me down the path of like, you know, I know when I get out, one, I want to mentor kids because I think that's important. But also I want to tell the story of who's actually in prison uh, because none of us should be defined by our worst moment. There's a whole complex system of things that happens that leads us down that path. And, and I wanted to make sure that I was honoring my relationships and friendships mm -hmm. as a man, you know, to speak truth to what these men's experiences were without absolving them of responsibility. Right. And to me, you know, it's great that we talk about systemic racism and, and, and prison industrial complex, but there is a human element to it. Mm -hmm. There's a human reality to it. There are victims of our crimes that can't be ignored, even though the system is what it is. Yeah. And for me, it was like, I know that I've hurt people. You know, I've hurt people in my family by just my absence, uh, including my oldest son, who was born six months after I was arrested. Um, you know, I've hurt my father, who had to take on that responsibility because of my absence. You know, and then at the same time, this is I'm his son, who's in prison, you know. Right. Um, and so, you know, those things to me, they have to go hand in hand. Our systemic fights have to go hand in hand with the uh, desire and the willingness to see people as redemptive. Um, and so that's how I came out and just started like doing the work. You said something a minute ago where you said, you know, you had to have the courage to access, you know, these like you were like, you know, when I was a kid, I was, you know, I was. um I was smart and I was curious about things and you were like, you know, but I had to have the courage to, to access that. What do you mean by that? By having the courage to access that? Because I feel like a lot of times I talk about just like, you know, the, the internal work we have to do and how there is a certain level of like bravery that comes along with being able to like face like that, which has come that, which has shaped you. But I'm curious to hear from you, like, what you mean when you say that? It's scary looking back. You know, it was scary to look back. And and, and especially... Why like, is it scary? Well, you know, for me, what was scary was was to look back and, and wonder if I was ultimately responsible. So that was the first step because mm -hmm. yeah. the internal story 
that I was telling myself is that I'm bad. Therefore, only bad things can happen to me. Right. And then going back and then even being able to reassign responsibility. Like it took me years to say that what my mother did was abuse because in black culture, you know, whooping your ass is an accepted norm. Right. And, and, and as opposed to the trauma, it actually is. And, you know, not even just the physical violence, but the, the emotional and mental. And I'll, and I'll tell you a quick story. Um, you know, like I've been growing my locks for over 20 years now. Um, it took me three tries because the first time I started growing them, I remember looking in the mirror and the first thing I heard was cut that nappy shit off. And like that came from my mother always telling me, take your ass up to the barbershop and cut that nappy shit off. Meanwhile, my brothers and sisters who had a different hair texture were celebrated for having good hair. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I got the first time I cut it off after a few days. Second time I got a few weeks down the line. And so that's what I mean by courage, the courage to go back and look at the things and say what they actually are. Like they, that hurt, you know what I'm saying? Like as a boy that hurt to hear my mother, you know, uh, uh, demean something that's inherently natural to me that I had no control over. Um, and so going back and, and looking at those moments, like when, you know, my first sexual experience at 13 or 14 on the side of a crack house, and realizing that that was disgusting. And it was a disgusting experience that as a kid, I was just a tool in this twisted game. And so I had to go back and, and, and reframe what the truth was based on a narrative, you know, countering the narrative that I had told myself. I'm like, yeah, you know, 14, I was getting it popping. It's like, no, at 14. You know what we're afraid of? Yeah. We're afraid of the shame. Absolutely. Absolutely. The courage is Facing having home. the is is as having the courage to face the shame that we may have and also that we may have to assign to people that we either love or that we have created a narrative around and absolutely. like the dismantling of that yes absolutely that's what i feel like you're describing cuz yeah. i've i've just i've seen this in myself i've seen this in people i've dated and then you know for what it's worth like especially if you have people that are still alive right so it's like you going back and looking at things that your mother did and like your mother's still here. You know what I'm saying? So then it's also like, wait, is she? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so then it's like, damn, and now I got to like face you with this new awakening and like, how am I even going to deal with you? You know, like I've, I mean, I've gone through that um, with, with a number of experiences and it's just, it is scary because you also, it's the unknown also. Yeah. It's the unknown. And then there's also that element of other people being involved. So with my mom, you know, mm -hmm. one of the most questions I get a lot when I'm doing, you know, talks around a book is your relationship with your mom. It's like this urgency that people want that relationship to be healed. Right. And it just speaks to the value in the, in the way that we hold mothers in such high esteem yeah. just in general. Right. And, you know, me and my mother, we, we've gone on this journey that's to me is beautiful. You know, and it's beautiful because I realized that my mother were dealt a certain set of circumstances that yep. led to her being who she became. And but it wasn't easy, you know. And the first time that we had to confront the reality was when I first wrote the book. And, you know, her and I got into a, a heated conversation where she was like, you know, well, how dare you, uh, you know, talk about the way that I beat you. You didn't know what was going on in my life. And I said, exactly. 
That's the point. None of your kids understood that at 16, you had your first child, that you were in an abusive relationship, that you had been beat as a kid. When you were beating my ass at eight years old, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand the rage that you had from unresolved issues. But now as adults, we're here. We can talk about it. I'm not judging you as an abuser. I'm articulating exactly what happened to me that shaped me as a man. Um, and, you know, and so we, we went through this, this tough, you know, kind of process. And my mother's reaction to mostly everything is to shut you out. You know, it's like, yo, I don't want to talk. I'm getting off the phone. And I was like, no, actually, you're not getting off the phone. And we're going to have this conversation like two adults. And then we're going to come out on the other side of this. And it's going to be beautiful and all those things. But I'm here to hold space for that. And I need you to be here to hear me as your son and as a man at this point in my life, you know. And so, you know, we went on that journey and it's, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, what I've, what I've concluded is that we'll never have that, you know, uh, you know, son, daughter, mother, magic, and, and that's fine. You know what I mean? But that's my mom's, you know, and I love her and I care about her and I care about her healing. And, you know, I'm actually even trying to convince her to move out here uh, to L.A., you know, because I want her to be able to age with the grace that I think our elders are deserving of. Yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be some neat, cute package. You know, it's OK. It's, it is what it is. Like, I'm grown enough to, to handle what that is because I understand who I am and, and I'm, and I'm fully at peace with who I am. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's how those things, you know, play out for me. Avenue, a, podca <clears throat> a podcast network.